they don't let me cheer for the Bears in Chicago because I'm not from there. And so whenever I make any comment about the Cubs or the Bears, they all, my congregation just rolls their eyes at me and they're like, yeah, right. You know, and so I've just given up. So I, I you know, I'm. Hey, we'll accept you. I watch a lot of college football. So if you guys want to talk about the Badger season this year, which is phenomenal, I'm glad to talk to you about it. I know about that. I'm not. No, Aaron Rodgers, I've heard of him somewhere. <laughs> he is. Uh, all I know is he, every time I heard the name Aaron Rodgers, I heard Brett Favre's name somewhere. In the and I got to hope that this next year that will not be the case. You know, let's put that to rest. But uh, anyway, well, this morning I want to talk about, uh, I, I picked a, a title called Every Man a King. And uh, for those of you who are history guys, uh, you'll remember that that expression actually comes from the Depression era in a state that uh, some of you have probably traveled to called Louisiana. And in Louisiana, during uh, a depression that was certainly greater than the country at large just because of the nature of Louisiana, there was a guy who rose to power there named Huey Long. And uh, many believe that he could have potentially run for president if he had not been uh, assassinated later in his life. But part of his campaign strategy was to make unbelievable promises. You know, I mean, you know, national figures were saying things like, we want a chicken in every pot. That wasn't good enough for Huey Long. Huey Long said, in Louisiana, every man is going to be a king. And that was kind of the way he campaigned. And it uh, gets picked up. If you want to see a very easy-to-watch story about it, uh, slightly fictionalized, you can watch All the King's Men, uh, which is an old movie. I love old movies. Uh, you know, for those of you who didn't realize they actually made movies that weren't in color, you know, there, there are a lot of those back there that are just fantastic. You can watch that story. But you know, Huey wasn't far off. This idea, every man should be a king. Internally, we kind of all know that should be true. I mean, that's why expressions like, every man is the king of his castle, you know, sort of exists. There is this intuitive sense that we as men were made to sort of be in charge. Now, sometimes that can create controversy, admittedly. Uh, whenever I left college and went to graduate school, I went to seminary, which is a graduate school for people who want to be pastors. And, uh, you know, what I thought I was going to find was a bunch of guys who prayed a lot and were very spiritual and knew the Bible inside and out. And unfortunately, what I found was a bunch of guys a lot like me. And uh, I was hoping for people to pull me along. Uh, and I still remember when I first got there, we had to have a student government of, I don't know, for some reason, and uh, I was sitting in this group full of other men who were all going to prepare to be Presbyterian pastors, and you could not get these guys to agree on anything. I mean, there's nothing worse uh, than putting a group of 23-year-old know-it-alls in a room than to put 23, uh, a room full of 23-year-old know-it-alls who, uh, who all believe they should be the leader of the group. You know, and so I just sort of laughed. And I realized at that moment that uh, I have no idea how churches with large staffs function, you know, if there are a bunch of pastors on staff. I'm still working through that as one, but uh, because we all want to be in charge. Now, I want to point out an interesting corollary to this concept that's in our culture today. Does anybody have any little girls, any young girls in their home, like under seven, a few? You know, there's a phenomenon that has swept through the country over the last, I'd say, 10 years. My daughter just missed it. She's 18, and so she was just slightly too old for this phenomenon. Does anybody know the phenomenon I'm talking about? Princess, Princess 
movement. The Princess Movement. And uh, if you're not aware of it, it's a billion dollar industry by Walt Disney World uh, that has enabled them to pull out old characters that they had back in the vault, you know, like Sleeping Beauty and uh, uh, Ariel and all of their little princess figures throughout all of their movies. And they've made costumes and tea sets and all sorts of accessories that are all princess themed. And every little girl under seven who's had any exposure to the world outside wants to be a princess. Now what's interesting is you don't find little boys wanting to be princesses, right? You don't find little boys that want to be a prince. But yet all these little girls want to be a princess. And I started thinking about it one day and I said, I, I think I understand this. You know, because think about the life of a princess, at least the one that Disney uh, you know, sort of puts out there. It's someone who has all of the luxury and wealth and benefit of royalty without actually having any responsibility at all. And I sort of chuckle, and I've told my congregation this. For those of you young men who are going to be married, you know, who are like seven or eight now, and you're going to be like 18 and 21, you eventually want to get married, I want to warn you now that you're marrying a princess. So good luck with that, you know. So I'm not exactly sure how that works. One, they'll be looking for Prince Charming, so most of you guys are ruled out right off the bat. You know, uh, you know, but secondly, you're going to have someone who's going to expect all the bennings and very little responsibility. But uh, maybe that just feeds in. But men are different. Men, men eat responsibility for breakfast. We, you know, we sort of want a job that has meaning or purpose. You put us in something where we don't have any say, any, any directionality to it, and it sort of frustrates us. It thwarts us. Why? Because we remained that way. We saw it in the text last night. I want us to go back to it. Genesis uh, chapter 1. Let's go back and look again at verse 26. Uh, We'll start at 26 and we'll look at a couple other verses here. As I said last night, uh, the Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 is the beginning of our story. And as such, it's telling us things that are fundamentally true about who we are and what we're made for. God has put it here for us so that we would not be clueless about why He put us on this planet. And so uh, that's why we look at it over and over again. I spent a lot of time here, and I hope you will as well. Genesis 1, uh, starting verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And uh, then verse 31, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love You. We thank You that You have given us another morning, another day of life. Lord, that is a gift. Lord, we're thankful for the good breakfast, Lord, for having uh, uh, the fellowship of our brothers. And Lord, we're thankful that You continue to invite us into Your Word and into Your presence. Lord, we thank You that You want us to talk to You. You want us to listen to You. Lord, You want us to learn from one another. Lord, we pray that now you'll send your spirit, that we'll continue to be encouraged, that we'll be led toward uh, a more beautiful glorifier of you, we pray, in our time. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. 
As we look at this passage, I mean, there's something that just jumps off the page. It's a word that's almost never uh, used in our world, and that's the word dominion. Dominion. And that's a, a fascinating word. I'm so glad the ESV has maintained that word. Uh, but you see that word both in verse 26 and verse 28. When God made man, He made him to have dominion. Now, what does that word mean? Well, that word is a word that, of course, means rule, reign. You know, he made him to be in charge. Now, this is fascinating because in the ancient Near East, where the, the time in which the Bible was being written, there, there was an idea like this. There was this idea that, that God chose particular people and He visited them and talked to them and treated them special and gave them particular responsibility. But those people were only the potentates. They were only the kings. The rest of the people were just supposed to be servants of those people. The amazing thing about the story of Scripture is that it's telling us not just that a king, somebody like Moses, is being talked to by God, that he has been designed for a special purpose, for a special uh, sort of direction, for rule, but that every person has been made for this purpose. That humanity being made in the image of God partially means that they have a dominion sort of element built into them. They're made to rule. And this is, this is important for us because, to be honest, over the last, uh, you know, I don't know, I probably started at least mid-60s, uh, since that point in time in our country, it's almost as though the desire to, to be in charge or to direct or to rule has fallen on hard times. You know, so much so that the young people that are in my small group, they're all out of college and under 30, uh, you know, they don't want positions of authority. They don't want positions of, of uh, ultimate responsibility. They don't want to be in charge of people. They don't want to have to tell people what to do. And why is that? Because they have just been brought up in a culture that believes all authority is bad. They believe being in authority is bad. They believe people in authority are bad. You know, in the 60s, we began to question the man. We began to think that anyone, you know, the old expression there, and I think it was Timothy Lear or somebody like that, said, you know, don't trust anybody over 30. You know, the problem is they got to 30 really fast. You know, I bet they were surprised how fast they got to 30. And then they had to start not trusting themselves. You know, and then all, you know, heck breaks loose. So, but we live in that culture where people believe that uh, authority or power corrupts and uh, the more you have, the more corrupted you are. So the only way to stay free from it is to avoid it. Well, the problem is if you're avoiding it, then you're avoiding part of the, the way God made you. You're avoiding something God's made you to be and to do. And to be honest, it's just nonsensical. You know, it's essentially living in a denial. All of you are responsible in, in, in some context or another. You send people off to college and, and you're telling them to do a good job. You're paying a lot of money for tuition. And what do you hope that they will do? That they will at least be in charge of themselves. That they'll be in charge of their time. That they'll be in charge of the resources you entrust them with. That they'll be uh, in charge of what they do with the data that they get. That they'll be in charge to show up on time for class and exams. And you're actually giving them all kinds of responsibility to give leadership, at least to themselves. They become an RA and you ask them to lead a hallway. You ask them and it just keeps going. You can't escape it. You know, you are made to be someone who is ruling, who has dominion. That's why we've been put here on the planet. Now, I know this goes right in the face of culture. In our culture today, we're being told that the earth was really great until we showed up. You know, and, uh, but that's not God's plan. That's not the way God thinks about it. God made this world, and He made it good. He made it without any sin, without any, without any vestige of what later became known as the fall. 
And yet, in that world, that perfect world, He still put man there to be in charge. He said, here's what I want you to do. That's part of the representation we talked about last night. He said, you are going to represent me. Now, there's a, a term that you use oftentimes when you read about this called vice-regency. Vice-regency. And that's an important thing to recognize. Because God did not put us here to be ultimately in charge, but to be a vice-ruler. Now, I know that vice president is just the person that we elect uh, you know, so that he represents a part of the country and then we never see him for four years. I know that that's the way we think of vice rulers. But in this case, I would say it's more like associate ruler. God has said that I rule all things, but I am entrusting you with ruling underneath me. You know, let's call it middle management. All of us have been called to a middle management. The good news is we report to God. We report to God. And that's, that's our role. We have dominion here on the earth. Now, what does that mean for us? I mean, what does that practically mean? Well, one, I want you to see the two commands in verse 28 uh, that God said was entailed in that. In verse 28, it says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. There are two things there that are really being talked about. Now, later this afternoon, we're going to talk about uh, the idea of work and how that's connected. We're going to come back to this. But I want you to notice, at least for right now, that there's a distinction between two kinds of ruling in this world. And the first kind of ruling is being fruitful and multiply. Now, here's a quick quiz. Who primarily is active in the being fruitful and multiplying part of the job? Man or woman? Who Who gives birth to children? I'm sorry, I'll bring it down. Who gives birth to children? Men or women? You can say it out loud. Women. That's right. And so, is there a corollary to the fact that the uh, command to have dominion may fall more importantly, more significantly on the male? I think so. I think you can see this clearly when you look at Genesis chapter 3. And when man falls into sin, God comes and curses. And He curses the man and the woman differently. And He curses them in the areas of their primary responsibility. And so for the woman, she's cursed in the area of her primary responsibility, which is being fruitful and multiplying. And so where does the curse come into play? Childbirth. So when when she's doing the thing she's made to do to express dominion on the earth, which is to multiply, that's now going to come with pain because of sin. It's no longer going to be a delight or easy. It's no longer going to come sort of naturally. It's now going to be unnatural. So we talk about natural childbirth. In my opinion, epidural childbirth, that's natural childbirth. Because it was designed to be with pain. That's, my wife was like all for that. She's like, yeah, natural childbirth, no pain. You know. But then he turns to the man and he curses the man. And what does he tell him? Your dominion over the earth is now going to come top because the earth's going to fight you. It's going to produce thorns and thistles and it's only by the sweat of your brow that you're going to do it. In other words, he curses him in this very role. This role of being a vice region of ruling, expressing dominion on the earth. Okay, so I'm just saying that it's very good evidence that this particularly applies to men. That we were made for this. This is why we really would rather be the king than the prince. You know, we're sort of made to give leadership and direction. Now when I say that, I want to give you two categories that I want you to keep in your mind. There are two terms, you know, that I want you to keep in mind. One term is steward. Steward. And the second word is servant leader. Steward and servant leader. So that's what we're going to talk about the rest of our time this morning. The first idea is the idea of steward. Now, 
a steward these days sounds like something you have on a cruise ship, right? You know, uh, isn't, isn't that the guy who comes by and cleans your room, you know, when you're out? You know, oh, steward, you know, but that's not, that's not the idea of a steward. Uh, the idea of a steward is best illustrated in uh, your banker. You know, does anybody have a bank account? Anybody? Anyway, I don't know. Well, the way accounting is going, you may be putting that back in your mattress. I'm not sure. But uh, anyway, if you have a banker, here's the way it works with my banker. I go in, I fill out a deposit slip, I hand them, you know, the money that I want to put into my account. And, uh, you know, I always think of this scenario that would be very disturbing. If I go and open a new account, which I do anytime they increase the fees on me. And anytime the fees increase, I go over to a new account. Uh, it's just, I'm cheap that way. But uh, anyway, that way I have money to buy iPads. But uh, anyway, I, uh, I'm, a, I'm a strain and that swallow camel kind of guy all the way around. But uh, so anytime they raise a fee like 50 cents, I go open a new account and you bank. And when I go, I, you know, I go with the, a check and I give them the money. And if this scenario played out, I would be very disturbed. If I went down to the first bank of Naperville, uh, which is a fictional bank, and I were to give them $10,000. And I say, okay, I want to open a new account. And they say, oh, that's just great. Welcome to First Bank of Naperville. And they hand me my little passbook. They say, we're going to order your checks. And, uh, you know, I just sort of let that money sit there. And my whole goal is for it to grow and get a little interest. I'm going to use it for college later on. And then I go five years later and I want to get my $10,000 and the interest that it's collected. And a funny thing happens. I go to the, go to the little desk there and I say, you know, I'd like to make a withdrawal. I'm going to withdraw the you know, $10,000 and you know, 50 cents that I have an interest. And, uh, you know, I'd like to take that out, you know, because I'd like to use it for something else. And the little, the little person behind the desk starts typing, and they, they look up, they look really concerned, and they say, uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Hodge, this account only has the 50 cents. And I say, well, wait, wait a second. What, what, what do you mean it only has 50 cents? I gave you $10,000. It should have $10,000 and 50 cents. And uh, they look again, and they dig a little deeper, and they say, Unfortunately, Jacob opened your account. And I say, what do you mean Jacob opened my account? And they said, well, Jacob had kind of a funny way of doing things. When people gave him money, you know, he sort of figured they gave it to him. And so he actually took that and he went on this really cool, you know, world tour. And he really enjoyed it. And he appreciates you giving him his money. So it's not here. Jacob used it. Now... At that moment in time, how will I feel? I'm so glad Jacob had a nice time. You know, well, I said, logically think, I did give Jacob the money. I, mean, I handed it to him. I said, here's the money. I mean, in every possible way you could say, I mean, I, it was his. I handed it to him. It was his to do with what he wanted, right? No, I wouldn't say that. Because there is a relationship that I'm, I'm establishing when I gave him the money. And it wasn't a relationship of here it is, it's Merry Christmas, it's yours to keep. But here it is, you're now a steward of this resource for me. And if you take the resources that I give you, Jacob, and you use it out there for whatever you want, then you're not being a good steward of my money. Your job was to put it in the bank so that it could collect its 50, 50 cent interest and uh, that I could get it back when I need it. Well, that's the way God gives us rule. God did not give us rule and say, hey, have at it, do whatever you want, you know, uh, however you feel like for your own self, selfish interests, for your self-centered purposes, you know, just do whatever feels right. He said, no, you're doing it on my behalf. Being a steward means that my rule is always exercised under his leadership, in his direction, according to his values. I'm supposed to use the opportunities, the abilities, the talents, the resources that I have for him. We see this illustrated beautifully uh, for us in a great prayer of uh, King David. 
when he is dedicating a new temple uh, in First Chronicles chapter 29. Uh, it's just a marvelous passage. It's at the end of David's life with its ups and downs. And finally, he, he's not able to build the temple, but he's able to at least do the fundraising. And if any of you have a passion for that, raising money, but not really being, you know, not being able to complete the project, y'all come become part of my church. So, uh, so here he is. He's raising all the money uh, for this. And just as a side note, uh, it just blows my mind. Uh, he gives uh, for the work himself. Uh, he gave. Let me find this. It's just uh, in the chapter previous. David gave three thousand talents of gold. 7,000 talents of refined silver. Now, just for your information, a talent is about 75 pounds. I preached a a sermon on this particular text, and I sat and I thought, okay, multiply 3,000 times 75, and that's how many pounds of gold David gave to the temple. That's measures in the tons, by the way, uh, whenever you measure it out. And I said, can you imagine how much that's worth? And I had a guy with an iPhone. And after the service, he came to me and he gave me some extraordinary number. It turns out it was worth something like $21 billion or something crazy like that. Uh, if gold's worth $1,000 an ounce or something. And uh, I was just laughing. And I'm like, what was the point after that? You know, so just in case you decide to answer a trivia question for the pastor, make sure that you wait until after the sermon's done to begin working on your iPhone. But anyway, so here he is. He's brought really billions of dollars of assets himself and the people have as well. And they brought it to the temple. And then David makes this, this great prayer. And uh, you can see it. We'll pick it up in verse uh, 11. It's just such a beautiful prayer. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over over all. In your hand are power and might and in your hand is uh, it is to make the great and give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I? That I that and what is my people that we should be able to do uh, this willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. For we are strangers before you, and sojourners as our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand. And it is all your own. And I love that. Because there David, who just gave billions of dollars worth of assets, is saying, all I did was return to you what belongs to you. And that stewardship is the understanding that everything we have. David's asking the question, what do we have to give? Except what you've given to us. And so when we think about how we express our rule and our reign here on the earth, we need to start with that fundamental idea that every single thing that we have is God's already. The question is, how am I using God's stuff? How am I using His stuff? So let's do a quick inventory. You know about uh, uh, how how what what's included in God's stuff? Well, our my actual you know assets. So it's tax time. Some of you have had to do this recently. You've looked at the resources that you had or didn't have last year, and you look at how much of it the government's going to take from you. I don't know. Does the state of Wisconsin take a fair amount of that as well? 
Well, you know, Chuckle, I mean, we just doubled our tax rate in Illinois from a, a 2% flat rate to a, a, or 3% to a 5%, almost doubled, and uh, which was ironic because after two years of hard economic times, we were finally able to give our staff a 2% cost of living increase at the very same time that Illinois raised their uh, state income tax 2%. So, uh, in my exciting letter that I sent to my staff, I said, the, and I quoted Joe, the Lord giveth. The Lord take it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It just works that way. I don't know if Wisconsin works that way, but that's the way it works out in Illinois. But as you do all that, you know, sometimes we look at the money that's, that's going out, that's being taken. But it's rare that we sit and say, why in the world would God give me so much? Why would God give me so much? You know, we often think about wealthy people as the people who live on the other side of town or live in the bigger house or live in another place. You know, the people who have the X number of cars and this kind of yacht and all of that. But the reality is, in terms of world history, we are the richest people that have ever lived. We're the richest people. When the Bible talks about wealth, they're talking about people who have one-tenth of what you have. If you have enough food to eat today and you have food in the pantry to eat again tomorrow, you're rich. You know, if you have transportation to get anywhere you want to go, you're rich. You know, if you have more clothes than you're wearing right now, you're rich by biblical standards. And we have so much. Do we look at all these things? The money in our bank account, the clothes in our closet, the toys that we have, and we say, that's God's stuff. How am I using His stuff? How am I using His stuff? I'll tell you one thing that's helped me is to actually start talking about things as God's stuff. So every now and then, just to remind myself, I actually refer to God's iPad. Or I refer to God's car. Usually when there's something wrong. (laughs) It just helps me have perspective. You know, the car needs work. And I say, well, I'm sure that God has a plan for His car. Because it is His car. And He provided the car, He'll provide me a way to keep it running. And that changes my perspective because I remember I am responsible, but I'm responsible as a steward. My job is to say, what would God want me to do with His stuff? Now, that doesn't mean that you give all of your financial resources necessarily in the offering, but it certainly means you'd be willing to. Certainly means that it was called on you that you would leave it all, that you would follow Christ. You know, it's interesting. I, I recently talked about stewardship in my church, and I preached three sermons on it, which I'm only summarizing here. And uh, uh, I started the series by saying, you know, I want to, re- you know, set your mind at ease. You know, I do not want, you know, a little bit of your money. I don't want you to give a little extra. I said, I want all of it. I want it all. The whole idea of stewardship is not to think about what little part belongs to God, but to recognize all of it belongs to God. And to ask the question, what am I doing with all of it? But it's not just my stuff, it's my time. What am I doing with my time? How do I spend my time? Do I fritter away my time? And people ask me here about my my little iPad here, and it's a big toy. I mean, I use it for this, and this helps me justify it in my mind. Uh, It helps me justify buying the new one. I don't know. The truth and the reality is I spend far more time playing Sudoku and uh, Angry Birds, uh, which looks awesome on this ice cream. And and a game that's a lot like Risk, which uh, just for those of you who like to feel like you're in charge of the game, the electronic version of Risk is great as long as you don't put the players on like difficult, because then they just smoke you. 
And then you're like, yeah, I don't feel like I'm in charge of anything. So that's what I do. Uh, I have like five animated movies on here that I watch to entertain myself. I watched the second half of Elf last night when I went back to my room. Uh, you know, I just love that little scene where he says, you're an angry elf. You know, that still kills me. So it's a toy. But how am I using, you know, my time? Am I frittering it away playing games? Or am I doing something that's productive? And this is where we get into devotional life. We talked about it a little bit last night. But you know, the reality is most people who tell me that they don't have any time for devotional life, I ask them if they have a television in their house. You know? And then, kind of look like this real fast. I say, oh, how big is it? That's, you know, I mean... You know, there's some things you don't ask men about in that category, but you know, how big is it? 65 inches. 65 inches. You have a 65 inch TV, and what? You just watch Disney movies? What do you do on that thing? And uh, well, then I said, do you have cable? And they're like, well, I've got satellite and cable. I'm like, okay. So you've got 300 channels. Maybe your issue isn't not having enough time. Maybe an issue is stewarding your time. So that you're spending it on the things that are the most profitable. You know, or think about your relationships. What relationships has God given me? With my friends, if I'm married, with my spouse, with my children, how am I stewarding that? You know, those relationships are something that God has given you. That's not just for you, mate, it's for God gave you. How am I stewarding that relationship? Am I seeing them as someone God's brought into my life? Am I open-handed saying, I'll use that relationship, I'll utilize that in a way that gives Him glory for whatever time He gives it to me? Or how about your talents and abilities? You know, that's an area that oftentimes we forget belong to God as well. We think, no, that's me. I'm good at that. I'm smart. I'm intelligent. I'm talented. It's like, yeah, and how did you work that out? You know? How did you decide which family you'd be born in? How did you decide which school system you'd be educated in? To be honest, I've had little children and they had no say in this stuff at all. They came out of the womb and they were victims of circumstance right off the bat. You know, God put them there. And God environmentally and genetically made them so that they would have the gifts and abilities. Okay, it's God's stuff. How do we use His abilities and talents? That's the idea of being a steward. Jesus, whenever He was talking about uh, the kingdom of God, He would often talk about it in this same way. As, uh, as uh, my double click didn't take. He uh, said in Matthew chapter 25, verse 21 through 23, uh, in the middle of a parable, he says, his master says to him, a servant, a steward, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Over and over, Jesus connects the idea of stewardship with a greater enjoyment of and a greater joy in the future in the kingdom of God. If you've been faithful with a little, He entrusts you with much. That's the basic stewardship question. As we think about our dominion, our rule as men, we not only want to ask the question, like, how are we doing so that we can give ourselves a grade, A through F, but we also want to ask the question because we want to say, am I setting myself up that God might give me more opportunity? More relationships, more time, more ability, you know, all of these things. Well, the Scripture's clear, multiple places. Faithful with a little, He entrusts you with more. And don't just think temporally about this, because the Bible tells us that it turns out that, and and I love doing this with Genesis and Revelation, that the way it starts is the way it finishes. 
It starts with men being in dominion along as vice regents with God, and it ends that way, where we will rule and reign with Christ forever. We actually are going to do what He made us to do without the problems of sin and our, and our own uh, sluggardness and all of the rest. So I want you to keep the idea of stewardship. Now that ties right into the world we live in, right? You know, in the world we're living, stewardship comes up all the time. It comes up in our conversation about the earth, right? You know, why do they have recycle bins around here? Which, by the way, I appreciate you guys having recycle bins around the can, uh, being a can and bottle junkie that I am. Uh, because that's just being a good steward. It's being a steward of the earth that God has given us. You know, why, why do I try to cut down my emissions? Not just not because some, some uh, political group that I may or may not agree with decided they would pass that into law, but because it makes sense. If, if I'm doing something that is not taking care of the earth, I want to reverse that. You know, in Boy Scouts, we uh, learned this lesson a long time ago, leave no trace. Now, we always did, but we tried, right? And the whole idea was you wanted the next person to come and enjoy the space and the environment and the view as well as you got to enjoy it. You want to be a steward, you know. And so part of that, you know, so we don't need to reject it all. Some Christians are like, oh, yeah, all this environmental stuff. I just And they just reject it out of hand. Don't. Ask the question, what are they talking about that actually is good stewardship? And what can I agree with? Because it is a good stewardship of the earth. Now, I don't want you to go all the way with them that it would be great if the human race ceased to exist on the planet so that the earth would be healthy. I don't agree with that. We talked about that last time. But how can I be a good steward? So that's good. All right. The second aspect is servant leadership. As I said, whenever I went to grad school, I realized quickly that you put a bunch of leaders in the same room and it can end up being contentious because everybody wants to be ultimately in charge. And do you know that Jesus had the same problem at least three times? And I don't think that there's parallel accounts because two of them were in one gospel. And if you read the accounts carefully, it seems that at least three times their arguments brought, were brought up in the disciples about who of them was the greatest and who is going to have the greatest responsibility in the kingdom. My faith, my faith is when uh, James and John's mommy came to Jesus. That's still my favorite. You know, they, uh, I, I've been reading articles now that I'm becoming a helicopter parent that, uh, uh, you know, about helicopter parents. And for those of you who don't know what a helicopter parent is, it's a parent that doesn't let their kid do stuff themselves. You know, so they, they're the ones who are always talking to the guidance counselor at the high school. They're the ones who go and apply for school. It reminds me of a funny story. Um, one of the young men in our church is a very bright young man. Uh, he made a, a 35 on his ACT, which is, you know, I, mean, I just, well, I don't know what his problem was. He couldn't get that last point. But anyway, he, uh, you know, he's very bright, done very well in school, but he has no idea where he wants to go to college. And any of you guys have that struggle when you were going through? Uh, like, where do you go? You know, the problem is if you're a really good student, you, can, you really could go about anywhere. You know, and so he's having a hard time picking from everywhere. You know, and uh, aside to his dad who had a, a work reversal, he worked in the banking industry. Industry and uh, and things were very very slow and uh, we were talking. And he says, "Well, my son wants to be an engineer," and I'm like, "Well, that's good. You can be an engineer by going to a lot of different schools." He goes, "Yeah, I know, and some of them are a lot more expensive than others." And so I started talking up Clemson, which if y'all know about Clemson, Clemson's a great little school in the upstate of South Carolina, about an hour from where I grew up, and it is the, the most Christian public school you will ever find. The, the Reform University Fellowship, which is a campus ministry of our denomination, has about 500 kids in it at Clemson University. It's the biggest. Uh, FCA has six, 700 people show up at a meeting. I mean, it, out of the 16,000 students, I swear there are 30,000 Christians, you know? So it's just that sort of thing. 
and it's in a nice little college town, and it's you know it's mild and temperate. It's a great little place. Uh, I didn't want to go there because there are a bunch of rednecks there, but it's. Uh, <laughs> I spent my whole life with them. I thought, you know, I'm not going there. But anyway, so, and, and the color, and, and they dress in this color orange. Kind of stuff. So that's their, that's their color, you know. So they are hunters, so I guess it helps. But anyway, and uh, when I was talking to him, this is what a helicopter parent does. Uh, later on, I followed up. I said, hey, did your son apply to Clemson? He goes, yeah. And so when I saw his son, he works for the church uh, as a security guy every now and then, I said, hey, Casey, man, I'm, I hear you applied to Clemson. And he looked up and goes, Mr. Hodge, my father applied to Clemson. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, I didn't apply. He went online and filled out the application. Turns out his dad got accepted. So... <laughs> All that to say, helicopter parents are not letting their kids do things themselves. So much so that they even go and uh, make appointments with college professors to debate grades that kids got in classes. That's how bad it's gotten. We have nothing on James and John's mommy. Because James and John's mommy, here are James and John, they're disciples of this new teacher, this this uh, seeming Messiah that's going around. And she comes and says, listen, I want you to do me a favor. Make my boys your left and right hand. And you can just imagine, it says that this argument breaks out among the disciples. And you can imagine what they were saying. You know, your mother? Your mother? What do you say? You know, and, uh, but the reason they were upset is because they didn't think about sending their mom to talk to them. Because that's, that's really what happened. They're, they're like, oh, no, I'm going to be in charge. And that's the problem. Is that we don't understand. And so Jesus tries to teach us. And so in Matthew 20, verse 25 through 28, uh, Jesus calls his disciples together and he says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here we see so many things about what it means to be a vice regent of God. First of all, it doesn't mean that we're cruel and insensitive. I think we see a little hint on the direction that that's going all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. If you look at the curse, there is a curse between the man and the woman. It says that from now on, the woman's desire is going to be for her husband, but it says, but you will rule over her. And that sounds good to guys until they understand what's really being talked about. You know, when it says her desire is going to be for you, you need to compare it with the verse that's just a few verses later in chapter 4 when Cain's thinking about murdering his brother and God comes to him and says sin has a desire for you and it's the exact same expression sin desires you so for the, all of you who say cool the result of the fall is my wife now desires me it means desire to control desire to dominate and so because of the fall, this relationship, this marriage that was supposed to be harmonious and cooperative is now battleground. Because now the wife wants to be in control, which implies that that wasn't the case before. And secondarily, it says, and you will rule over her, which there are a lot of textual studies written about this, but I think the, 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 in the context it's understood to mean that he is going to be an ungracious leader in his family. It's going to be messed up. The relationship's messed up because of the fall. But then when you get all the way over to Ephesians chapter 5, and Paul starts talking about that relationship, he says, wives, submit to your husbands as the church does to Christ. And so he's reinforcing this created role 
that there is a harmony, there is a, a jointness in that relationship, and the wife uh, really glorifies God in the way that she submits to her husband. You know, but then he turns to the husband and says, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And in that, he's repeating the exact idea that Jesus is saying here in Matthew. That true leadership is not pushing people around. It's not dominating people. It's not belittling them. It's not your way or the highway. It's laying your life down for people. Jesus says, you want to be a leader? Be the greatest servant of all. Now what's fascinating to me is that uh, when I was uh, reading a little book by Jim Collins called Good to Great, I don't know that any of you guys ever read it, there was a fascinating uh, part of it about leadership. Now, the humorous part, for those of you who've read the book, several of the companies he highlights is, yay, awesome companies, are like bankrupt now. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. It's still a good book. He was interviewing CEOs, uh, and they found a remarkable truth about these companies that had done exceptionally well against their competitors. And the thing that he found is that they didn't have the kind of leader you'd think they'd have. He said that, you know, when you interviewed the leaders, you thought you'd find the Jack Eckers of the world, you know, out there, loud, brash. He said, but instead what you found was quiet, humble guys who loved their companies. He said when they talked about ideas of what to call this person, they called it a level five leader because they couldn't think of a term. They said one of the terms that they thought of using was servant leader, but they thought that sounded too weak. And I laughed when I read. I just I laughed out loud. You know, it's where I read a business book and laugh. And I laughed because they were so close and then they missed it. That these leaders were effective leaders because they were dialing into the way God's made us as men to be leaders. Not dominant, belittling leaders, but servant leaders. And Jesus goes a step further than just saying this is the way you ought to lead. He says, I want you to watch that that's the way I lead. You know, we want to be very careful about uh, Christus exemplar, you know, where we see Christ as only an example. But there are times where Christ says, I am an example. And in this case, he does. He says, your leadership needs to be modeled after the way I lead. And he says, how do I lead? He says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why Paul picks up on it in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, husband, that's the way you need to lead. You need to lead in a self-sacrificing way. So a true leader is one who combines these ideas. And I think they combine perfectly. Think about it. If I am a leader who wants to dominate and control and be in charge for my own sake, then I am not being what we talked about first. I'm not being a responsible steward. I'm treating the person or the resources or the opportunity like it's mine, not like it's God's. When I understand that it's God's, when I understand my wife is God's, when I understand my children are God's, when I understand my job is God's, and my talents are God's, then suddenly it changes my orientation to it. Instead of having to be completely in control of it, I realize that I'm working for God in this situation. Well, how would God work in this situation? I know how God will work in this situation. Because I have Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm going to serve in that situation. I'm going to show my love. I'm going to show the direction. I'm going to show what needs to be done because I'm going to set an example. And so how am I doing in my leadership? Now, some of you are saying I'm not in leadership anywhere. Sure you are. Sure, I tell my children this all the time. Every single person is in leadership in some context. If you have friends, you're leading. They're watching you. They're picking up on your cues. They're making decisions because in some way they're influenced by you. So how are you leading? 
If you're a father, if you're a, a husband, then you're leading in that context. If you're a, a boss, a manager, uh, own your own company, you're leading in those contexts. If you're a professor or teacher, you lead in that context. The question is, am I leading in such a way that shows that I'm there to service you? I mean, we all know this. Let's take it to the classroom. You know, the teachers we love the most are the ones who actually acted like they cared about the students. Who actually gave you back papers eventually. Who had helpful comments on them, right? Well, what kind of teacher is that? One who's serving the students. That makes them a great leader. You know, that's true of a boss as well. Has anybody been in a performance review that it's like the boss didn't know you at all? You know, you're like, uh, was this just a way of y'all cutting back? I mean, where did that come from? So much different than when you sit down with someone who's been overseeing you that is serving you. They're giving you comments not because they want their company to work better, but because they want you to be better. They want you to improve. That's the one who's serving. It's not always easy, but it's always beneficial. And so this is what God calls us to do. So as men, here's my encouragement, last encouragement. And by the way, you know, time. I'm so not about time. Uh, we have nowhere yeah, to go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, even though I got enough battery life to play in your it's all so long. I, having said what I just said, I feel like that would be bad. <laughs> Don't ever use real life illustrations when you're teaching or preaching because it always comes back. <laughs> I once told my congregation that I was trying to lose weight. I had 250 accountability partners at that moment. <laughs> Every time I ate with them, oh, Chris, you're not eating that, are you? I'm like, oh, it's like having 250 mothers. <laughs> I lost weight. But anyway, it is, uh, here's my encouragement. Man, don't be afraid to lead. Don't feel like there's something wrong with you or that it's sin for the desire to lead. That's the way God's made you. But, as I pursue the desire to lead, ask myself the question, how am I expressing that leadership? Am I doing it in a way that I could say, I could report to God in the way I'm leading in this situation? In a way that reflects His character and His values? And am I leading in a way that shows that I truly am trying to serve as I lead? So, most people, most guys I know, if they're really honest, would say, well, then I'll just prefer not to lead, because that sounds hard. And it is hard. And it's only possible as we depend on the Holy Spirit to work in us. As we depend on Him to give us the attitude and the resources and the patience and the ability. I mean, if you're married, you know this is true. Try loving your wife as Christ loved the church as though He gave Himself up for her. That's just great when she's cooperative. You know, That's just great when she's in a good mood when it's not that time of the month. But it's real difficult the rest of the time. We'll call that the other six and a half days of the week. <laughs> but then I said a thing. No, I love my wife. My wife's awesome. I heard that moan. I heard that moan. If I can say something here, I can't say on a Sunday morning. My wife is awesome, but she's a human being. She's fallen just like me. And try, trust me, she's got a tougher job. Try to submit to me. You know, what a pain in the neck that is. You know. But here's what I know. Here, the, Jesus wants me to love her that way. And then it glorifies Him for me to love her that way. And that when I trust Him and I do that, then I benefit. Because not only do I see God working through me, but I enjoy the benefit of the relationship that's created by it. And so it's totally benefit. Too many of us are short-sighted. We say, I just want the immediate, I want the quick, I'm just going to lead this way because it seems like it'll get it taken care of. And by doing that, you're ensuring that you'll enjoy the misery you enjoy now in whatever situation you're in ad infinitum because you're not being a leader to change it. 
When you trust the Spirit to work through you as a responsible steward and as a servant leader, you begin to open yourself up to the Spirit moving and working in you to change the environments God's put you in to rule on His behalf. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we love You and thank You that You've given us these instructions. Lord, and we're just scratching the surface just barely on these topics. But I hope that we can talk about it, that we can think about it. Or that we can ask, how are we expressing Your rule in under You and under Your authority as a steward? And, and how are we modeling our rule after You as a servant leader? Lord, if we are men that, that lead and, and direct others in that way, in this world we'll be unusual men. We'll be men that people say, well, you know, what's up with that? And we'll get to tell people it's because I'm just trying more and more to be like Jesus. And I'm failing, but the Spirit's helping me get there. May we be those kinds of men, Lord, who live our lives and lead in our lives. For your glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Um, okay, so we have... Yeah.